Well, friends, I'm going to tell you, put your seat backs and tray tables in their upright lock position. Make sure your seat belt is securely fastened. I'm not about to land this thing. But I am wearing my navy blue sweater vest, so you know it's going to be a good sermon. <laughs> no, really, remember the story about this sweater vest? When I was given it as a Christmas gift years ago, the dear person that gave it to me said, now you'll look like a real preacher. Do I look like a real preacher now? Maybe not, maybe not. All right, a little bit of applause in the back. Out of mercy, thank you, God bless you. You know, it's my penultimate sermon as your senior pastor. I just had to say that because I like the word penultimate. I'm really starting off poorly. Maybe we should turn to God's Word. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 and following. We are going to talk today about the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment, because a word I've used around here for well more than a decade, is otherish. And otherish we define as the biblical New Testament Greek word, agape, which means God's love. It's a special kind of love. And otherish, as I've defined it, is God-powered. We can't do it on our own. It's supernatural, not natural or fleshly. It's the opposite of selfish. It is other-focused. So it's thinking about other people, and it is self-sacrificing. It causes us to give beyond ourselves for the needs of others, not giving out of our need, uh, excuse me, giving out of our want, but giving out of our need in a sacrificial way. And so when I think about what I would want to say to our congregation in my last four sermons, this one had to be there. And so we've got our scripture memory verse of the month that we want to review first, and that's from next week's sermon. The scripture memory of, of, uh, verse of the month, 1 Corinthians 1.18, let's say that together. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, thank you. We'll talk about that next week. Let's read our passage today. That scripture memory verse of the month reminds us that we're not like this world and we won't always agree with it and they won't always agree with us and they won't understand us and that's okay, they're not supposed to. But let's talk today about the greatest commandment and if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you do so as we read Matthew chapter 22 verses 34 through the end of, well not the end of the chapter, through verse 40, excuse me. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. May God add to the reading of his word. You can be seated. We've got three portions to our sermon today. And the first is simply recounting the passage of scripture. That's the exchange that happened here about what commandment in the law is the greatest commandment in the law. Now, if you were to go back through chapter 22, you would notice that there are three different tests that Jesus is put to, three different scenarios that are placed before him to 
put him in a trap so that he would expose himself as a heretic, as it were, before the Jewish leaders. The Sadducees have delivered the first two shots and they failed miserably. And now the Pharisees get together, as we see in verse 34, and they're going to come up with one. They got a, oh, we got a scheme. We really got to get a good one here, they say. But I love in verse 34 where it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That word silence there literally means to put a muzzle on them. I don't know if you've ever muzzled an animal to keep them from you know, biting, but they might can make some sound as well. But that literally is the physical picture of the thing that happened to them. He put a muzzle on them. They'd ask them this absurd question of seven brothers and which one is going to be the uh, husband of the wife and husband and stuff like that or in heaven. And so here he goes. They're coming after him again. You know anybody like this that it's just like they sit around and scheme and try to figure out ways to catch you, try to trip you, try to make you look bad. And that's what was happening here with the Pharisees coming after Jesus. And notice what it says there in verse 35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Tested him. More likely, he was trying to trap him. They may have thought that Jesus was, you know, just from Nazareth and some hayseed from backwater place and he spoke with a Galilean accent and he wasn't that sharp. And so they're going to try to test him, try to trip him up, catch him to expose him for the fraud they believed he was. And so he asks in verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, some would think because he says teacher, he probably said it with a little, based on the reaction of the man that's recorded not here, but over in Mark 12, where Mark tells the same story in parallel with slightly different details, you get the idea that maybe he received things well. So even though his buddies put him up to it because, hey, you're the expert in the law, or even though his buddies said to him, uh, you do this, he says teacher to Jesus respectfully, not full of scorn or contempt. And he asks him, what's the greatest question or commandment in the law? Now, why would he do this? If Jesus was a teacher and if Jesus was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah and they didn't agree with him, it must be that Jesus had some different teachings than they did. So it wasn't the standard teachings of Judaism that the Pharisees and Sadducees taught. It must be something different. So therefore, let's get him to admit the different stuff he's teaching, because that'll be heresy, and we can pin him to the wall. <laughs> Look at that guy, right? They were trying to see what sort of thing Jesus said. By this point in time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had 614 positive and negative commandments. How many commandments did God give Moses? Ten. But they expanded it over the centuries to 614. 248 of those were positive commandments. They said, we have one for each body part. I don't know how many body parts there are. I'm not an anatomy major, but... They, they reckon there were 248 different body parts. And they had 365 negative commandments, one for each day of the year. Can you imagine that? It'd be like, hey, Pastor David, today is don't, let your, don't rescue your uh, ox out of a ditch day. I mean, that was one of their commands, right? Not to be confused with don't beat your ox when he's misbehaving day, because that's, you know, like March 23rd or something like that. 
They had all these commands that they had developed, and so they thought they were going to trap him, going to test him, going to expose him. And Jesus answers with absolute, pure orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is a fancy word for meaning just by the book, just what they expected. There's heresy that's outside. That's what they thought Jesus was going to answer with. But Jesus answers with orthodoxy. He says, here's the first and greatest commandment. It was what they, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, would have agreed was the first and greatest commandment. What they had built up as Jewish leaders was the first and greatest commandment. And he answers just like that and, frankly, surprises them. So your first point on your outline is that the exchange, which is the greatest, is they were testing Jesus. That's what this man was doing. He was testing him to try to expose him, to try to see what his teaching was. And I I don't think he was mean-spirited about it. It seems like he was genuine in wanting to know. But Jesus, and that's your second point there, tells them about loving God. Loving God. They were testing him, but he answers with loving God. What's he say there in verse 37? Love the Lord your God. Agape, the Lord your God, otherish the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And each one of those phrases is in the Greek. So it's there for emphasis, just like I as a pastor repeat something or an author repeats something or a song repeats something. It's so you remember it, so you hear it with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Exactly, Jesus. Love God with everything you've got. It was the Shema, the command that was a prayer for all Jewish people. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And it was by far the most copied scripture and most quoted scripture in all Judaism. If you were a good Jewish person, you would say that prayer at least two times a day. And that prayer would be written down in the phylacteries. You've seen Orthodox Jewish guys with a little thing like a box on their forehead. And then they have the little thing like around their arm and they've got another box right there. And it's so that, you know, you have these on your head and near your heart, on your heart. That's why they would put it on their arm. So it's right there by their chest. They were taking that command literally. And the Shema was one of the scriptures that they wrote that they literally put on their head and literally put on their arm so that it would be close to their head and their heart as a reminder all the time. And Jesus says, this is what you do. Now, the Hebrew word he used here when he uh, quoted, uh, or in the Shema, excuse me, is an act of the will. It's an act of the mind. It's determined care or welfare for someone or something. It's a dedicated, committed choice. This is the sort of love God desires for us. That with our minds, we say, I may not know everything about God, but I know enough to know He's God. And with our will... We say, because of what I know about God, I'm going to commit myself to follow God. And with our heart and our passion, we pour ourselves into a life that follows God. God doesn't want empty words or rituals from us. He doesn't just want us to have the scripture in a box on our head and in our arm. He wants us to live it in a love relationship with him. This is the first and greatest commandment. But there's another part here that Jesus adds, and that's loving others. They're trying to test him. He says, love God, but then he also adds to it, 
loving others. Jesus is not trying to one-up them. He's not trying to do them one better, not trying to make them look bad. He's just saying it because it's the truth, because God delivered it to him, and he's delivering it to them. Verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The same virtue pointed in a different way. It's love. You love God with everything you've got. But you're also supposed to love others with everything you got. With all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And it says here, love your neighbor as yourself. Now some have twisted this scripture in our modern day and time and say this scripture teaches self-love. Not at all. It teaches sacrificial agape love. And it's saying, just like you love yourself, because you're going to feed yourself, right? I think looking at you guys, you all eat. You're going to bathe yourself, we hope so. We're going to clothe yourself, we're thankful for that. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that one, sorry. You're going to take care of yourself, it's the nature you have. And you're going to take care of your family, because that's what you do. And you're going to take care of others you know, and you're going to take care of your business at work because you're a responsible person. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus is saying, and using my word here, agape your neighbor as yourself. Otherish your neighbor as yourself. Treat them better than you would yourself. It's a hallmark of Christ followers. And so Jesus says, and this is your fourth sub point there, to let Everything rests on these. The word that is used there is actually accurate translation. Maybe I turned it around and made it wrong. But all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So you could look at it as a foundation that it's built upon. And without the foundation, everything else falls down. Or you could say it's like the rope that holds all that everything of the law and the prophets. That if you get this right, loving God and loving others, everything else is going to follow along because these virtues determine everything else to follow. You're in Matthew chapter 22, but I want you to turn over with me to 1 John chapter 4. The Apostle John writing. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Right. Jesus says, love others as you love yourself. John says, love one another because it comes from God. And it demonstrates that you have been born of God, born again. And you know God or walking in a personal relationship with Him. Verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God. So the opposite is also true. The positive is if you love God, you'll love others. But the opposite is also true. If you don't love others, it demonstrates you're having a hard time loving God. You may not really love God as much as you say. Last phrase, because God is love. That's that same Greek word, agape, my word, otherish. Because of who God is, And because we have a personal love relationship with Him, it should change us to the fact point where we love others that same way. So back to Matthew 22. What we've done so far this morning is we have recounted the exchange between this Pharisee lawyer seeking to test Jesus and Jesus' response 
Love God and love others with everything you've got. But what does it mean to us? That gets to the second major point on your outline. And that's the meaning of it is, what should I understand? Because if all we did is what I've done so far, I've explained some of it. But we haven't applied it to our lives. We haven't thought more deeply about it. So what is it that when we hear these scriptures, we should say, it's not just a history lesson. It's not just, ha ha, Jesus got them when they thought he was going to get them. No, there are two major factors to consider here. The first one is the priority of love. It's an act of my will. As I told you, the Hebrew word used there in Deuteronomy 6 that Jesus would have been quoting here in Matthew 22 is an act of the will. It's a choice. It's a commitment. It's dedication. It's that idea of otherish, that it's God-powered. I can't do it on my own. It's otherish. It's the opposite of selfish. It's other-focused. It's not about me. And it's self-sacrificing. These are things that don't just happen. When I choose to let God fill me with His Spirit, I choose to deny myself, I choose to be obedient to God rather than follow sin, These are acts of my will that say to me, to God, and to anybody who's witnessing my life, the priority of this person's life is love for God because of the way they live their life. Not just that they got the Jesus sticker on the back of their car, the cross on their neck, and they don't say ugly words, but that they live a life that demonstrates their heart has been changed. That they're committed to Jesus and they're committed to Jesus because God first loved them and calls them into a personal relationship and says, love others like I love you. It's otherish. What Jesus does here is lift this debate above the rules. Remember, the Pharisees, teacher of law, 614 rules. This is the way you're supposed to do it. They thought they were going to catch Jesus in some own rules or something. And Jesus answers right inside their rules, but not really. Jesus answers above their rules. He answers a principle, a value, a priority that all these 614 rules hang on this one thing. And what do they hang on? Love. Love, that if you get love right, it's an act of your will to choose to love God and choose to love others, that all 614 other things will fall into place. It's not about all this that they thought they were going to get. It's about these. Yes, these are things you're supposed to do, but it all follows, all hangs on love. If you can love in an otherish, agape sort of way, It's all going to work out. That's the priority of love. Let's talk about that second meaning. That's the attitude of love. The motivation of my heart. Not only do I, as an act of my will, make love a priority and say, I'm going to live otherish because God did it to me. He asked me to do it to others. But it also changes my heart. It's not just mechanical. I'm going to keep it a priority. But it softens me so that I see with eyes of faith. I see with eyes of compassion. I see with eyes that love. 
And because I see with eyes of faith, love, and compassion, it motivates my hands to do something. It motivates my mouth to say something. It motivates my feet to do something. And I serve others in the name of Jesus because my heart has been changed. It's not just a mechanical act of my will, but my heart, my very motivation, my attitude has changed. We've said before that if you have an obedience problem, you have a love problem. You don't understand well enough how much God loves you and how sinful and despised you were. And how much grace you've received and how much forgiveness and how much mercy. If you understood those things, your heart would be changed. Maybe that's something that you need to ponder on. That attitude of love that you have. So we've had this exchange. They're trying to test him. We have the meaning, what we're supposed to understand, the attitude and the priority of love, both an act of my will and the motivation of my heart. But we've got application as well. That's your third major point this morning. How do I live it? It's one thing to sit here or to be at home and watch on video and go, oh, okay, that's good, Pastor Ann, thank you for explaining that to me. It's quite another thing for you to do it, isn't it? How do I live it? Beyond the priority by bringing these two texts together, this love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself, which I didn't tell you earlier is based on Leviticus 19.18, if I recall correctly. Jesus gives this principle of love that applies And it's not just about religious duty. It's about the fact that our hearts have changed as well as our minds. And we choose to live in an otherish sort of way. So your first question there is, how well do I love God with everything I am? Could it be said of you by somebody who judged your life that your life demonstrates loving God with everything you've got, with all your heart, soul, mind, and Mark adds strength. Well, friends, you can't do that on your own. You've probably tried before and you've been frustrated and you got mad at the church and you left or, you know, you got mad at the pastor or mad at whoever told you you should follow these rules within Christianity. Well, you can't do it on your own. You need God's help. Just like John says, I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase within me. In order to love God, you've got to say, okay, God, I need to be more sanctified, more set apart, more like Jesus. What sort of things do I need to chuck out of my life in order that you can put in the stuff you desire? The fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That that's the way I live and that's how people see The second question is like the first. How well do I love others? Like I love myself? Do I naturally see the needs of others? Or is it still kind of forced? Am I automatically motivated to be compassionate to others? Or is it just when I think it works out best for me? Is my heart moved to love for others? Would I care for others in that otherish God-powered, 
other-focused, self-sacrificing sort of way. We've got two more questions of application. The third one is, how much do I need God's grace to love like this? This might be the big one. You have a good heart. That's why you're here. That's why you're listening online. But you also are so full of flesh and self. That's how you're made. And there's this struggle within you of right and wrong, righteousness and sinfulness, and it goes on. And the devil, because he's a liar and a deceiver, and that's his native language, is going to try to deceive you and put you down and tell you you're good for nothing. And all the things God's already forgiven you for, he brings back to your mind as if you're still guilty of him. And that false guilt is going to press and you're going to get anxious and you're in this fight all the time. And you know what you need to do? Surrender. Lord Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all that I am all that I desire, and I need you to fill up me. Not that my personality would change, but that my mind would change, and my heart would change, and my life would change, because I must decrease, and you, Jesus, must increase. And I need your grace in me, God. I need your grace, because I don't naturally see the best in others. I need your grace because, God, I get a little angry at times. God, I need your grace because I get fearful at times. God, I need your grace because I really have a hard time forgiving, especially that person. God, I need your grace. That's okay. It's God-powered. It's supernatural. It's not natural. God's got to do it for you. Your fourth and final question today. What do I need to confess And to turn from right now. Something came to your mind. That last question as I was talking about it. That's what you need to confess. Right now and turn and repent from. Maybe you need to seek accountability. Maybe you need to make some new habits. Maybe you need to do something to help strengthen that change. You know you need to make. That God would give you the capacity to love him with everything you've got. And love others with everything you've got. How are you going to do it? Surrender. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning with some joy, but also um, a bit of trepidation. It's not easy to be challenged to love so selflessly as Jesus. To love you with everything we've got and to love others like we love ourselves. But we don't have to do it on our own, do we? We need to surrender and ask you, God, to do it through us. So God, our Father, we pray for those of us that have already trusted Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Whatever it is we need to confess, we would do right now. We'd confess it by name. And we'd repent and turn from that thing right now. And we'd make a commitment in our mind and our will to follow you and love you with all our heart. And God, we pray for those who are not yet believers in Jesus, whether it be a boy or a girl, a teenager or an adult, 
in this room or online that right now they would say, I need to live differently. I'm tired of doing what I've done in the past and I need to trust Jesus to be my personal Savior and Lord right now. So God, change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.